So, uh, hey, this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to close out this series on marriage, and um, I hope it's been good for you. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been uh, practical. Um, I know some of you are ready to move on. That's okay. Uh, Paul is back. We're going to start a new series next week. But um, I hope this has been good. I hope this has been helpful. You know, because it's such an important topic. I mean, marriage is so, so central to society, and, and in today's world, oftentimes it's just a punchline. And that's assuming that we can even agree on a definition. I mean, marriage is taken for granted in so many different ways, and yet it's still, from what we understand from God's Word, it's still the greatest hope that we have of experiencing the kind of love that all of us want to have. The kind of love that, that each one of us, deep down, Inside, God has built into us to desire to experience with another person. And, and not just an emotion, not just, you know, uh, an infatuation, not lusts, nothing like that. But what we're talking about here is real love, enduring love, committed, unconditional love that lasts for a lifetime. And that's what all of us want. And it's what God desires for us to experience in our marriages. And so as a result, as believers then, what follows is that as believers then, we should have the most dedicated, passionate, exciting, committed, can I just say stinking hot marriages in the world. That's what God's word is is telling us, that our marriages are supposed to be unique from everyone else's because that's how he's designed it. And we can understand what it looks like to follow him and to follow in that dance that he's created for us. All right, so over the last couple of weeks, what we've been talking about is that, that the key to experiencing this kind of marriage, this kind of love relationship in our marriages, starts with this idea of mutual submission, what the Apostle Paul calls mutual submission. And, and we've said, look, it's, it's not about trying to wrestle your spouse to the ground. It's not trying to make them tap out and say uncle, right? But it's this idea that, that in your marriage, we're supposed to submit to one another. It's not making them submit. It's we are submitting to each other. And we take our priorities and our interests and our well-being and our welfare and we say, we're going we're gonna to use that. We're going to submit it to the other person for their good, for their betterment. And so when you take two people in a marriage and they experience this kind of relationship, it creates something like a dance where each person tries to out-love, out-honor, out-respect, out-serve the other person. And so the husband says, honey, I want to put you first. And she says, no, I'm going to put you first. Oh, no, you first. No, you first. And on and on the dance goes. And so what we said after that then is that if the key to that kind of marriage, that kind of, of uh, love relationship is this dance, then what follows is that the biggest threat to our marriages then isn't the things that we normally think of. You know, we usually think of like pornography and lust and adultery and addiction and all this type of stuff, but those are simply symptomatic of the great lie. The lie that the success and happiness of my marriage depends on my spouse. Which is a little counterintuitive because we think if it's all about this dance, then it just makes sense that the most important thing should be who I'm dancing with, right? No, that's actually not right. Because what happens is if I depend on my spouse, their perfection to be the key to this dance, what I've effectively done is I've stepped out of the dance and I've taken the weight and the responsibility of that marriage and I've placed it on them. And I've said, it's up to you and nobody can live up to that kind of expectation. And so what we said was, the success and happiness of your marriage doesn't depend on the perfection of your spouse, right? That's not happening. It doesn't depend on the perfection of you because that ship sailed a long time ago. What it, what it depends on is how well the two of you do your dance together, putting each other first. And so then last week what we said is that that all sounds great. 
that all sounds really wonderful in theory. We can, you know, write a book and take it on tour and do all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about reality. Let's talk about real life. Because life is hard. Real life is hard. It, it brings all kinds of pressures and stresses and tensions to marriage that threaten to split us up. And it blows up marriages all the time. So what do we do about that? I mean, how are we supposed to really love each other? How are we supposed to put each other first? How are we supposed to not resent each other when, frankly, the other person kind of drives us crazy sometimes? Right? That's the reality of it. And what we said was, before we can love each other, before we can put each other first in that consistently through the hard times, when they're driving us crazy, before you can do that, you have to like each other a lot. You have to be friends you have to have a foundation of friendship. I'm not talking about Facebook friends or acquaintances or business partners or just roommates. We're talking about BFFs. That if you and your spouse have that kind of relationship, that kind of friendship, that kind of foundation, where you know the other person, you know that they care about you, that they want to put you first, when you know that they're on your side, when you know that they believe the best about you, and you want the best for them, when you've got that kind of relationship, then you can handle whatever comes your way. You can, you can weather those storms because there's this foundation of, hey, I, I've got your back. I'm on your team. I'm on your side. And you can fight. You can have conflict. But you can come out of it because you're on the same team. So that's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. What I want to do this morning is kind of pick up where we left off and just kind of ask this question. Okay, so is, is friendship really all there is to it then? Is that really all we're talking about here? Is it just sort of this foundation and, you know, marriage is kind of a bigger version of, of, of friendship? And I think we all intuitively understand that that's not the case. I mean, there's something different about marriage. There's something unique about marriage. It's not just a friendship. It, it, has, to be, it has to be more than friendship, right? It can't be less than a great friendship. We said that last week. It can't be less than, but it has to be more than that. So my wife, Carrie, uh, she is absolutely, no question, my best friend. Where is she? Hello. Best friend, right? Absolutely the best friend. We do everything together. We are as close as I could possibly imagine. I mean, we are so close, right? She is my best friend. But I'll tell you, when we got up in front of that church and we made those vows and I gave her a ring and she gave me a ring and we did all that stuff, right? There was something going on there that was more than just friendship. It was more than that. Listen, I've got a lot of close friends, all right? I've had some really great friends over the years. None of them got a ring from me, Okay. I didn't make any promises to any of them about staying together in health or sickness and richer and poorer. And there was no honeymoon, I promise, okay? That didn't happen, all right? See, God has designed marriage in a unique way. He's designed it to be different, to be greater than, to be stronger than of just a friendship. It's got to be something more than that. And the reason for that is because God wants to use our marriages in a unique way to demonstrate his love. And so God is creating marriages, and he's creating them to have the strongest bond of any human relationship that you could possibly have between two people in this life. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So um, in Genesis 2, this is what I want to start with. Last week we looked at this passage in Genesis 2, and uh, we talked about how God has created Eve to be uh, a companion to Adam. And we talked about how this is one of those aspects of friendship, that that person is always there for you. But what I want to do this morning is I want to look at that passage again, and then I want to add a couple of verses. And we're going to see how it's not just friendship, there's something more to marriage than that. All right? So, you can read along with me. 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, real quick pause here. Like I said last week, this word helper here, uh, this is not saying that, that God, where is it? There it is. This is not saying that God has created Eve to be a slave or servant to Adam. Okay, that's not what he's talking about here. In fact, this word is a word that God actually uses of himself to describe himself and how he helps us. And so the, the implication in this context here is that, that Adam is insufficient to the task. What God has given Adam to do, Adam can't do it on his own. And so what he needs is a helper. He needs a teammate. He needs a partner. He needs somebody to come alongside him and to help him do that. And that's what Eve is to him. And they are uniquely fit together. All right, so let's keep reading. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so here's the picture, right? God creates Eve. He presents her to Adam. Adam sees her for the first time. And what does he do? He breaks into poetry. He breaks into song. The guy's laying down mad rhymes. He's like, check this out. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Man, he sees her and everything changes for him, right? Guys, husbands, do you remember the first time you saw your wife and it really like clicked for you? Like, do you remember that moment when you saw her and you were like, okay, something's going on here, Right? Sparks flew, right? We talked about this a while ago. and We said that's not all that sparks are. But man, that's important. It happens, right? I remember the first time I saw Carrie and it really clicked for me. Now we'd known each other for several years, but I'd gone away to school and I came back and suddenly I saw her and it was like, okay, hold on here. And I'll tell you in that moment, my heart beating out poetry, all right? Now I'm not a poet, all right? If I tried to articulate that, it would have been not impressive, okay? It was just uh, monosyllabic, you know? All right, but my heart was beating out poetry. Adam sees Eve, and it's a game changer. Everything changes. He didn't even know what he was missing until he saw her. Game over. Game over. So what happens? Verse 24. Leave and cleave. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, some of you are going, wait a minute, Adam and Eve didn't have parents to leave. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're not going to get into all that, all right? But listen, here's, here's what the author of Genesis wants you to understand. They want you to understand that the standard operating procedure for marriage is that the two of you leave parents or whoever else, and you become one. Now, we don't really follow this in some ways because it's really not that big of a deal to us to leave our parents. I mean, anybody here got married and thought, I want to stay with my parents forever. No, no, heck no. We don't want to do that. It's not the same in our society, okay? But what we're talking about here is not just a physical moving. It's not just a physical moving. We're talking about uh, emotional, psychological, financial distancing from these other relationships, and see, what the author is saying here is that, that the marriage relationship is supposed to be unique. It's supposed to be the central relationship in your life. That your marriage relationship trumps every other relationship. And you're supposed to create some space, some distance, some detachment, if you will, from your, that relationship to every other one. 
So your marriage relationship, it trumps every other relationship in your life. Your parents, your friends, your kids, your siblings, your hamster, your dog, your cat, your fish, everything, right? And I can even add on to this, all right? Hobbies, job, right? You ever hear that expression, he's married to his work? This is what it's talking about here, that there needs to be, there's these other things that are in your life, but your marriage is supposed to take priority. It is the central relationship. There's something unique about marriage. It becomes the most important relationship in your life. And if you don't leave, if you don't create that space between your marriage and everybody else, then it becomes much harder to cleave. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, it's hard to cleave? Is that what they're calling it these days? Um, Are we talking about the same thing here? Yes and no. See, holding fast, that's what he's talking about here. Holding fast, right? Becoming one is more than just physical. There's emotional, psychological, spiritual aspects of that, and it's all expressed in the physical act of sex. So God is essentially saying this, that you two individuals, you individuals now become so interconnected, so intertwined. There's such intimacy there that you become one. See, and that's why sex is so powerful and it's so essential to marriage because it's the physical act of oneness. If you're not leaving, listen, if you're not leaving, then you can have sex. Okay, that's, that can happen in your marriage. But the emotional, spiritual, and psychological oneness that accompany the physical will be harder to come by. See, there's only room for two in a marriage. It, it's the two become one. Not the three, not the four, not the five become one. There's just two. It's the two that become one. And as you and your spouse experience that kind of oneness, where you put each other first, where you put your marriage first, create that distance, that separation from others, so that your marriage has that unique place in your life, then sex goes beyond the physical. It becomes greater than that. And it creates and it strengthens this bond, this oneness that God wants to create between you. Okay? So if you're married, if you're married, you've got to leave. All right? Listen to me. You've got to leave. If you've got those people in your life who are always there, they're always involved in your life, you may need to create some space. Okay, if you've got your parents and they're involved in every decision you make and your finances and how you should live your life and how you make decisions, you need to create space. You have to leave. If your children are butting up into your marriage, okay, you need to create some space. All right? Your marriage has to have that kind of room. You've got to leave. You've got to have that space. But then you don't just create the space, right? You've got to cleave. You've got to hold fast. You've got to become one. Can I be really blunt here? You have to have sex with your spouse. I know here brains work. I'm just throwing that out there. I just felt like I should clarify, okay? So if you're married, you guys are tough this morning, all right? You guys have to have sex with your spouse regularly. Regularly. This is not optional. This is not... You know, something, if we feel like it, no, this is something that's supposed to happen. I don't know how else to put this. Sex is essential, non-optional part of God's design for marriage. My, my pastor back home used to say, he used to tell me that when couples would come in for marriage counseling, right, they'd be having trouble with something. One of the first things he'd ask them about is their sex life. Because he knew if they weren't sleeping together, then there was a problem. They were in trouble. 
It's the same for you if you're married. You're supposed to be having sex. If you're not, there's a problem. Okay? I remember uh, one of my favorite, um, one of the first times I was teaching on this um, was for a young couples class. And we were, we were kind of brainstorming all these uh, different ways that we're supposed to like, you know, create, create oneness and, and stay together and, and make sure your marriage is good. And so we were talking about like date nights and time spent together and, and hobbies and all this kind of good stuff. And finally, uh, um, David Dillard, who was uh, the honorary, part of the honorary young couple in that class, he was, uh, he was not as young as the rest of us, but he, they've been married for, I don't know, like 40 years at that point. And he, he kind of raised his hands and, and I was like, uh, yeah, David, what, what do you got? And he goes, uh, yeah, can I just say something? Yeah, if you guys want to have strong marriage, you guys want to stay together, um, have sex like sea otters. And to this day, I have no idea what that meant, but here's what I think. And I'm really scared to like guess. I just am. I'm scared to guess, but I think here's what we can take from it. I think what he was saying was, look, have fun. He's like, you should be having sex often. Have fun with it. Don't make a big deal out of it. But it needs to be happening all the time. God has created sex as the expression, the physical act of oneness. And it creates and it strengthens that bond between you. This is supposed to be happening. Now, some of you are wondering if your spouse paid me to say all this. I, they didn't. Um, you can pay me later if that would be helpful, if that would get that off your conscience. Uh, but let me show you this in 1 Corinthians 7. Right? This is the Apostle Paul. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You belong to each other. You don't have rights over yourself. She doesn't have rights over herself. He doesn't have rights over himself. You belong to each other. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. Quick note here. Quick note here. Listen. Listen. Withholding sex is not punishment. It's a sin. Let me say that one more time. Withholding sex is not punishment. It's a sin. And I'm not talking to just the ladies or just the guys here, okay? This is everybody. Everybody's got to listen to this. All right? Sex is not a carrot that you dangle in front of your spouse. All right? This isn't a reward for good behavior thing. This is part of God's design for making your marriage work. Okay, now, I'm not talking about, honey, I'm tired tonight. You know, can we, can we, that's, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about when you decide on your own, unilateral decision, that there's no way this is happening because they have not been up to their best behavior. And you're going to punish them for that. That is, look what it says. Do not deprive one another. Withholding sex isn't punishment. It's sin. Now, look, except, there is an exception. Just to be clear, there's an exception here. Except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time. So, what does he say here? Except, perhaps, maybe, not saying you should do this, but perhaps, by agreement. Not one person deciding, but the two of you deciding. You know what? We've got some stuff that maybe we need to be working through, that we maybe need to be dealing with. So, we're going to agree for a, how long? Limited time. And why? That you may devote yourselves to prayer. See, it's like fasting. Fasting, we uh, say we're not going to for a little bit. And during that, we'd normally be having a meal and enjoying that. We're going to actually spend some time devoted to the Lord, praying to him and wrestling through things. And it's the same idea you're doing it together. Two of you are saying, you know what? For time, we're going to put this on the shelf. And during 
time that we normally use, we're going to be intentional about devoting ourselves to prayer and seeking out the Lord over whatever it is that we're wrestling with. Okay, but that's the exception. See, it, it, it just doesn't get much clearer than this. All right, God has designed sex to be a physical expression of oneness. It's part of God's design for strengthening your marriage. So don't deprive each other. Don't deprive, deprive each other. And plus, hey, look, it's a deterrent to Satan. Bonus. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen, Satan hates your marriage. Satan hates your marriage. Satan wants to destroy your marriage. And so Satan would love for you not to sleep together. I mean, just think about that for a second. Because we always think that Satan loves sex. Satan loves sex, doesn't he? He loves sex. No, Satan loves sexual immorality. He loves sex that's being misused, that's perverted, that's being happening outside the context of Christian marriage. He's, he loves that. That's all great. He's thrilled with that. But listen to me, he hates, he loathes, he abhors sex in your marriage. He hates it. So, you want to tick off Satan today? You know where I'm going with this, right? You want to tick him off? Go home tonight, sleep with your spouse. Take that, Satan. In your face, Satan, that's how we roll, right? Listen, I'm not kidding. Satan hates sex in your marriage. This is a deterrent to him. He wants to tempt you. He wants to split you off. He wants to make you two again. You want to upset him? You want to take that off the table, sleep together? On the other hand, if you refuse your spouse, if you quit trying, if you don't make it a priority, you're playing into his hands. And some of you are thinking, are you serious? Is this, is this for real? Listen, a lot of times we underestimate Satan, okay? We think he's only interested in the big stuff. We think he's about blowing up buildings and starting wars and holocausts and terror and all this kind of stuff, right? But listen, he has his subtler side as well. He's no dummy. And he wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your marriage because in your marriage you are one, you're thinking, why? It's just so common. It's just marriage. I mean, why is he so focused on that? Because there's no such thing as a common marriage. Not the way God has designed it. There's no such thing as a common marriage. It's not every day. It's amazing. It's a miracle. It's two becoming one. And God wants to use your marriage to show off his love. God wants to use your marriage to show off his love. And that's a message that Satan desperately wants to silence. He doesn't want that message to get out. He hates your marriage because if your marriage looks like Jesus, if your marriage looks like God, loving, that kind of love, then it becomes a loudspeaker to your friends, to your family, to your children, to everyone in your life that love is real. That it stays, that it forgives, that it endures. Because that's how God loves us. Satan hates your marriage because he doesn't want that message to get out. But your marriage is designed by God to proclaim to the world that that kind of love is real. It's possible. It happens. It's the kind of love that Jesus has for the church. Look, look at Ephesians 5. Recognize this verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's the Apostle Paul looking back at the definitive statement that we found back in Genesis 2, and now he's applying it here. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects 
her husband. See, what Paul's saying here is, look, what I'm really talking about, I'm talking about marriage, but what I'm talking about here is Jesus and the church. You want to understand marriage? You've got to understand Jesus and the church. You thought this was all about you? <laughs> no. No, this isn't about you. This isn't just about your marriage. It's included in that. But we're talking about something so much greater. We're talking about the stakes that are higher than this. This is God saying, I want to use your marriage to show off my son. I'm going to show the world the love that he has for his bride. And he wants to do it through you. See, look, this analogy that's used here, this comparison, right? Marriage and Christ in the church. This isn't an accident. This wasn't God kind of thinking about it. And he was like, you know, I was kind of hanging out in heaven. I was looking. It was like marriage. Jesus, marriage, Jesus. Oh my gosh, those totally go together, right? This wasn't a surprise to him. This wasn't Paul, you know, like sitting around. He was like, I need a good analogy for marriage. Jesus and the church. I'm totally going to use that. No, this was part of God's design from the very beginning. This was rooted in the very beginning, the very fabric of what God intends marriage to be. The gospel is found in your marriage and it's supposed to show off God's love to the world. The stakes are higher than just our happiness. It's higher than just our marriage. It's supposed to be God showing off his love to the world. And some of you right now, I hope, rightfully are thinking, who, us? Our, our marriage? Are you kidding me? No, not kidding. Well, you're saying that, that God wants to show off his love through our marriage. Our marriage is supposed to show people the gospel? Yep. Wait, hold, hold on. In that case, that means we've got we to love each other better. We've got to put each other first. We've we got to do this dance. Man, we, we better start having sex. Yes, you do. Amen to that, brother. You need to do that, right? This is, this is part of God's intention. Listen, here's the deal. God intends for your marriage to be so powerful, so passionate, so committed, so loving, so sacrificial that people get a glimpse of Jesus and they fall in love with him. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't blow your categories for what your marriage is supposed to look like, then you're not listening. Your marriage is supposed to be so loving, so sacrificial, so passionate that it leads people to the gospel. That they see a glimpse of it, they get just a a little bit of it in the way that you love each other. And for that to happen, for that to happen... You've got to be one. You've got to be united. You've got to be so interwoven, so interconnected, so intertwined with one another that nothing but nothing can tear you apart. You've got to become one, and you've got to stay that way. You've got to stay that way. In a world that is sinful and broken and messed up and that threatens your marriage every day, not to mention Satan who wants to destroy you, on the side, you've got to stay one, and you've got to stay that way. Uh, when, when Karen and I first got married, and I'm, I'm going to close with this. When Karen and I first got married, um, we, uh, we were working two different jobs, you know, and, and I would get off a little bit earlier before she did. And so I'd go to the gym for a little while. And, uh, and there was this guy there that I would see pretty much every day. And he was, he was quite a bit older than me, um, but, uh, you know, fit guy. And, and we'd chat and talk, you know, in the gym. And, and at some point he found out that Carrie and I had just gotten married. So we were newlyweds. And his response, I, I think, was sadly typical. You know, he just said, uh, he said, hey, good luck to you. 
And he said, uh, you know, I was married for 20 years. 20 years. He said, and we were committed, and we were going to make this thing work, and we loved each other, and, you know, we, were, we thought we were best friends and everything. And he said, but, you know, things change. Life changes. And uh, it didn't happen. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, what he's saying is that all this stuff, it's not enough. You know, the, the, our love, our attempts at love, and they're not enough. And friendship, man, it's important. It's key. It's foundational. But it's not enough. Sex is not enough. We need something stronger than that. We got to have something stronger that's going to like glue us and tie us and bind us together. And what we find in scripture is that Jesus is the only thing that can do that. See, our attempts at love, let's just be real clear here. Our attempts at love, they fail. They fall short. We looked at this last week, but look at this. 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. It's in every wedding that you go to. We read this passage, but let's be really honest here. This love that Paul's describing, it's not our love. It's not ours. Our love fails. Our love disappoints. Our love gives up. Our love lets us down. But Jesus' love, Jesus' love, it never fails. It never gives up. It never ends. It always believes. It always brings hope. See, don't you see? Jesus is the one who starts this dance to begin with. Right? He's the one who takes that first step and says, I'm putting you first. He loved us so much that he put us first, that he believed the best about us when he knew the worst about us. He wanted the best for us, even though it cost him his life. And he is the one that if you take him and you put him at the center of your life, you and your spouse, you put him at the center so that the two of you are facing him as you fight through life and you keep pursuing him and finding him and searching him, you keep coming back to each other. He's the bind. He's the glue. He's the cord that holds us together and can never be broken. If you put him in the center and you take all the rest of it and you say, God, I can't be any of this. I can't live up to any of this. I'm going to depend on you. Jesus, I want you. And your spouse says, Jesus, I want you. And you find yourselves together. Then nothing, nothing, nothing will tear you apart. Nothing. Because he's stronger than everything. And his love, his love never fails. And it never ends. If you want to experience the kind of love that God wants you to have. If you want to have that kind of a marriage. If you want to do that dance. And you want to keep it dancing. You need Jesus at the center. You need Jesus at the center. Because when he's there. When he's there. Nothing can tear you apart. Nothing can tear you apart. And then. And then your marriage looks different. Your marriage looks different. It begins, to, it begins to shine. It begins to glow. It begins to radiate. Guys, your marriage can be a spotlight in a dark and cynical world. A world that is desperate for love. You think the world isn't desperate for love? Man, they're looking everywhere, but they're looking in all the wrong places and they don't know how to find it. And God wants your marriage to help show them the way. Put Jesus at the center. And then... You can do that dance. You can put each other first. You can be friends. You can believe the best about each other. And you can have sex that goes beyond the physical. And you can show this world that love is real. That kind of love that we all want, it's possible. It's there. And God wants us to have it.
here's your homework as you're leaving today. Last one. As you're leaving, you're going to get a little, a little uh, card. And what I want you to think about is just, if I can put it this way, the legacy of your marriage. What's your marriage going to be about? What's it going to look like? How would somebody else describe your marriage if they were to follow you around? How do you want your marriage to be described? What do you want it to look like? And for those of you who are single, there's a question on there for you as well, because it's really relevant. You know, if, if God was to, to um, lead you to get married, if that was going to happen for you, what do you want your marriage to look like? Because you need to be thinking about the kind of person who's going to be able to, to do that kind of dance with you. You know, it's not about attraction. It's all this stuff. That's important, okay? But it's got to be more than that. So what kind of marriage do you want to have? What's that going to look like? How would you describe it? And who is that going to lead you towards? All right. Um, I know there's a lot of questions. Um, I've gotten a few emails, and, and man, keep those coming. I, I love kind of wrestling through this stuff. But I just want to say, like, just because this series is ending, um, keep talking to me. Um, you know, Paul's back. You can talk to him as well. But, but this is too important just to kind of let it go, all right? So I hope you guys will do that, and um, I hope this has been helpful for you. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we're going to get out of here, all right? Father, we just thank you for this time. Lord, as, uh, as the band comes back up and we get to sing one more time, we unite. What a great song. Just thinking about the, the bond that we have in Christ. And it, it goes beyond just marriage. It's unique in marriage, but it's, it's all of us as believers. We want to be united with you. And as we're united with you, we're, we unite with each other. God, I just thank you for the gift of marriage. I thank you for all the marriages represented in this room. And I pray for strength, Father. I pray for power for them, not of their own, because their love will fail. But your love would just, God, it would, it would move through them. That your Holy Spirit would lift them up and draw them to yourself. And in doing so, draw them to one another. And God, for those who are struggling, those who are wrestling, maybe those who look back and think of what might have been, God, I pray that you would bring comfort, that you would bring peace. Lord, I pray that today would be maybe a first step towards healing. And for those who are looking forward to get married, God, I pray for them right now that, Lord, if you have a spouse waiting for them, Lord, that you would bring them, that you would reveal that to them um, in your proper timing. And, Lord, that they wouldn't be distracted along the way. And in the meantime, that they would use that, this, this incredible gift of time, Lord, as, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, Lord, to use this time to bring you glory in whatever you lead them to do. They don't have to wait for somebody else to complete them. Um, but Lord, if, if that's what you have for them, I pray that you would give them amazing marriages that, that magnify and glorify your love to the world. God, it's a world that desperately needs your love. I pray that we would show them what it can be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.